Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and not turning to Luke chapter 7, but instead turning to John chapter 11. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we need revelation from the outside, and we need transformation on the inside. So be pleased, Father, to use your word and your spirit to change us so that we could more and more know the object of our affection, the risen Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to be looking at a seven, possibly eight-week series, I Am Jesus in His Own Words from the Gospel of John. Um, I don't know if it's been the case forever, but it just seems like over the last few years, last decade, we, we hear a lot about the subject of identity. There, there's a cultural moment, it seems, of proclaiming your own self-determined identity. And that is considered a basic right. It's like uh, Amendment 11 or so in the Bill of Rights, right? Not the first 10 amendments, but number 11 is my, I am free to choose and assign my own identity. Who I am is determined by me. There is a movement afoot, uh, an atmosphere that we all live in of expressive individualism. This is who I am, like it or not. To be sure, we're all individuals and we're all unique, our DNA, our fingerprints, but there's just this movement, this atmosphere of expressive individualism that seems to just run over things. Identity. It is important, right? I mean, in the middle of the Gospels, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He, he, he wants to know, who do people say that I am? And he, he, he turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? You see, the identity of Jesus is hugely important. Each one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have that expression, who do you say that I am? Some of us were here when we went through the book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. In four gospels, in 89 chapters, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart the very heart of who he is. And if you turn with me back to Matthew 11, Matthew 11, and you look at verses 28 through 30, we read this. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am 
gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There in Matthew, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. But there's also a place where Jesus tells us who he is in his own words. In these seven statements in John, they are Jesus' own statements of self-identification. You've heard it before, but just listen to these statements. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. Jesus here uses images and figurative symbols, bread, light, shepherd, vine, as a means to help make himself known. These seven, individually as well as together, they paint a picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And these seven help all of us to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and importantly, how we should respond to him, how we should relate to him. You know, sometimes what goes without saying should be said. The central, dominant, and governing relationship in the Christian life is the one with Jesus. What we think about Jesus is important. And what we think about Jesus should be, of course, determined by what Jesus says about himself. Well, today we're not going to start in order. We're rather going to skip ahead to the fifth statement that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. As it were, we're riding the wave of Easter and the resurrection. The infant mortality rate varies country to country, and it's varied over time. Sometimes it increases, sometimes it's decreased by public health and access to medical care. But you know what never changes? The human mortality rate. Anybody want to guess what the human mortality rate is? Yes, I see. 100%, thank you. Yes, yes. Everyone is born to die. While we are living, we're also dying. You're alive now, but you're also dying. Benjamin Franklin wrote, In this world, of course, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Muhammad Ali, who grew up in Louisville, Cassius Clay, was his original name, he said this, I'm scared of no one, but only scared of death. Woody Allen, the actor, the comedian, says this, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Indeed, is it any wonder that funeral directors sign their letters, yours eventually? Now, although death is inevitable, the subject death, The subject of death is often unmentionable. And I think there's two basic strategies the world uses to deal with death. Deny it or delay it. 
deny it or delay it, or maybe a third, make a joke about it. Well, when it comes to death, some people live in denial. Other people try to delay it, but no one can escape it. Or can they? See, ask yourself right now, does your philosophy of life, does your grid, does your worldview, does the lenses through which you see everything, does it allow you to face death with peace, assurance, and quiet confidence? Or does your operating system, your grid, your worldview, your lens through which you view death lead to anxiety and fear? When you think about death, are you afraid of death? The author to the letter to the Hebrews says this in chapter 2, Through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So my friends, if you're human you've got probably some degree of fear of death. And some of us may be enslaved right now to that fear of death. But this is one reason why Jesus came. To rescue people from that kind of slavery, to deliver them from that kind of lifelong debilitating fear. Now, here in John, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh and final sign. In in John, there are seven signs or seven miracles that point to Jesus, who he is and what he does. And there are seven um, statements of Jesus. And this raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh and final sign. You see, John clearly wants his reader to, as he says in the conclusion of his letter, his book, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing to have life, life both before and after death in his name. Join with me as I, we read uh, John 11. Uh, We're only going to read together verses 17 through 27 And then we'll spend some time in that and a few places before and after. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So let's spend a few moments, a few minutes, examining this story in the life and ministry of Jesus by looking at a declaration he makes about himself, a decision he calls for in response, and a demonstration of his presence and power. We're going to look at a declaration Jesus makes about himself, a decision that he calls for in response, and then finally a demonstration of his presence and power. So first, a declaration Jesus makes about himself, and we see this in verses 25 and the first part of verse 26. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? I mean, C.S. Lewis was right. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or is the Lord. I mean, imagine someone saying, I am the resurrection and the life. It's, it's amazing. He, he speaks, first of a, a word of resurrection. It's a word about those who have already died. He, he's speaking of a, a word of life, a, a word to those who are alive. And he's addressing here two kinds of death, physical death, and spiritual death. Remember what has happened. Jesus has got the word that, that Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, is ill. They request him to come. Jesus delays. Uh, Jesus even makes a statement that it's good that I'm delaying because it'll be for God's glory. Uh, they think he's ill. Jesus says, no, he's going to die. He finally gets there, and as we read, it's four days after. He's been in the tomb for four days, and at that time, there was this superstition about resurrection, excuse me, resuscitation, kind of not being really dead, but mostly dead, and then coming back to life. But the text is clear. Jesus delayed. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Two kinds of death, physical death and then a spiritual death, but also two kinds of resurrection and life. Eternal life, of course, a major theme in John, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life. We see that also in, in 1 John as well. Martha responds to the fact that, yeah, there's going to be a, a, a physical resurrection on the last day. It was part of Jewish doctrine. Jesus believed it. The Pharisees believed it. The Sadducees, another kind of party of the Jews, didn't believe it. But then there's this idea of not just resurrection life, but everlasting life, eternal life, a spiritual life that, that once it starts, it never gives out. Not only future, but a present reality. And later in John, we hear these words from Jesus. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus in here is just beginning to explore the realities of, of what eternal life is. I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. At the center of this discussion of, of, of resurrection, life, of dying, at the center is this exclusive claim of Jesus. It is exclusive. I mean, there is something truly narrow 
narrow-minded about Christianity. Christ alone. And yet, although Christianity is exclusive, notice it's incredibly inclusive. And whoever believes in me, right? I am very exclusive. Whoever believes in me, very inclusive. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Christianity, and this is important, especially kids as you leave home and get out into a world where people will say, Jesus can't be the only way. No, no, Christianity is exclusive. Jesus is the only way, but it's inclusive. All kinds of people, old, young, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, from all over the world. Christianity is an exclusive inclusivity or an inclusive exclusivity. It's both. And we see that here in this statement that Jesus makes. And this exclusive, inclusive claim of Jesus is categorical, isn't it? Shall never die. That is lawyer language. As we work our way through the book of church order of the PCA, you've got to pay attention to may and shall. Big difference, right? Shall never die. Not may never die if you do it right. Shall never die. It's categorical. We see in John, never thirst, never cast out, never see death, never taste death, never perish. Sometimes we use and abuse those words, but Jesus doesn't. When he says it is finished from the cross, we bank on it. When he says... Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Same guy said it. Bank on it. Rest on it. Work from it. Jesus' claim here means that he and he alone takes away the sting of death, as we heard from our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Where's the victory, death? Where's the sting death? Jesus has won. Jesus has, as it were, defanged death. You see, Jesus didn't come to put us out of our misery, like to kill us, as the expression is commonly used. You know, you got to put the horse out of its misery. Sometimes you got to put your car out of its misery, right? Jesus didn't come to put you out of your misery. Jesus came to pull you out of your misery, to rescue you, to give you life here and now, as well as there and then and forever. Well, this declaration from Jesus doesn't stand alone. You see, it's, it's accompanied by a call for a decision. Uh, Jesus There's a decision that Jesus calls for in response. Look again at the second half of verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you go to chapter 20 in the book, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Luke 
is writing for a purpose, right? We, we know that. John's writing for a purpose too, that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing they would have life in his name. This question from Jesus, do you believe this? It's addressed, of course, to Martha. It's addressed to us. It's a question that is unavoidable. Do you believe this? But it's not unanswerable. It's interesting. Jesus is the preacher here, and he's asking a question about himself. Do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe here that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that death, that I am going to conquer death and deal with death? And what does Martha say? Uh, Martha knows that it's unavoidable, but it can be answered, right? What does she say? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha moves from, I, I know, earlier, right? I, I, I know, to, I believe. I believe. It's a stunning confession for Martha. It's a, it's a personal confession. Um, Jesus says, do you believe this? And she answers, yes, Lord, I believe that you, isn't that amazing? She's asked, do you believe this? And she says, I believe you. It's not abstract, it's not theory, it's not doctrine, it's personal. It's a stunning confession for Martha. It, she recognizes the Christ, the true ruler and hope of Israel, the son of God, the one and only, the redeemer of the world. Earlier in John, the woman at the well who Jesus ministered to, she was aware of the Redeemer that was to come into the world. It's not only a personal confession, it is a personal stand. It's where Martha stands. I, I think we're aware of secondhand smoke, right? Bellevue's got a new ordinance that takes effect um, this month. No smoking in, some, in public places, in bars, in restaurants. No smoking, because people have recognized the dangers of secondhand smoke. You're not smoking yourself, but you're in the company. You're in the presence of that smoke. It's dangerous. Well, here, with this personal stand, Martha is highlighting the fact that secondhand faith is dangerous also. It's got to be personal. It's got to be firsthand whether it's physical or spiritual, second hand is dangerous. The call of Jesus is a first hand relationship, not mediated through a priest, not mediated through church membership, not mediated through a good name and a good family, but mediated through the one and only Jesus. It's not only a stand for Martha, it's a starting point. Here she is coming to faith 
And it's the beginning of someone who's going to go on in faith or grow in faith. You see, our response, our attitude toward Jesus indicates our eternal destiny, our trajectory. Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. Here he says who he is and Martha believes God gives us faith, but we believe. He opens our eyes, but we see. He unstops ears, but we hear. I was talking to someone recently, and I probably need to clarify. Yes, we are to see, and yes, we are to hear. But we can't do it without his help. It's not like God opens our eyes, and from there on out, we're on our own. God opens our ears, and from there on out, We're on our own. No, day by day, moment by moment, the fact that we're seeing is due to him. The fact that we're hearing is due to him. You know, earlier in Luke, we looked at that uh, two houses. One was built on no foundation and the other was built on a foundation. The storms came and one house collapsed and the other stood Here is a way also of highlighting that question. What are you basing your life upon? What are you building your life upon? What is your foundation? Here Martha is saying simply that that Jesus is the foundation upon which her life is going to be built. So the question, of course, is, What's your foundation? It's really either Jesus or you. Ask yourself what's going to help you withstand the storms of life. You, your own wisdom, your own strength, your own know-how. Or is it going to be because you're resting and relying on Jesus? Now in putting together that simple outline those three D's of this passage. I first thought it would be in this order. You know, a declaration, a demonstration, and then a decision. But did you notice that's not how the text is presented? It's actually presented declaration, decision, demonstration. You see, Martha says, I believe, before she's going to see what Jesus is going to do. Why, why is it presented like this? Well, I think it's presented like this because a decision is called for based on the declaration or the promise of Jesus, not on a demonstration of the power of Jesus. In other words, it's about walking by faith and not by sight. Later, John will say this, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Jesus will say that. It's recorded in John, blessed are those that who have not seen and yet have believed. And Peter, remember Peter? Denied Jesus, restored by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. In his first letter, he said this, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You don't see physically, but you believe spiritually nonetheless. But knowing our weakness, 
Jesus goes on to demonstrate his presence and his power. So thirdly, let's look at this demonstration of his presence and power. I want to go ahead and just read a few verses beginning in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What does Jesus demonstrate? His humanity, his presence in the midst of what Calvin calls the violent tyranny of death. Jesus is sad. We read in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, but has to be one of the most powerful, right? Jesus wept. Not only that, Jesus is angry in verse 33. He's deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. He's deeply moved. He's outraged. He's indignant. He's angry. He's, he's compassionate, empathetic. He's outraged. He's angry. One commentator says this, and when I read it, I had to read it again. And so you're going to hear it. We're all going to hear it twice. Grief and compassion without outrage shrink to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous, not tempered arrogance. Do you hear that? Grief and compassion without outrage shrink to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous, not tempered arrogance. You see, death is an intruder. Death is a curse. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. It's, death is not a friend. It's an enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul writes. The reason the Son of God appeared, John writes in his first letter, was to destroy the works of the devil. And what were the works of the devil? Sin and death. So Jesus demonstrates his humanity, his presence, but what else does he demonstrate? His deity, his power. You see, there's a greater delay, a greater challenge. There's going to be greater faith and greater glory. He proves his power by what? Raising Lazarus from the dead. Four days, Lazarus is really, totally, not mostly, but completely dead. You see, this is pointing to Jesus' own resurrection. The greater proof 
for what Jesus says about being the resurrection and the life is his own resurrection. But here is a sign that points forward to that. John, the writer of this gospel, also shows us something else, that Jesus brings up division. Earlier in chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, you read about a division among the Jews based on Jesus' claim to lay down his life and take up his life. And here, there's going to be a division. People are going to believe in Jesus. People are not going to believe in Jesus. And what's interesting, if you kept on reading in chapter 11, somewhat ironic, that in bringing a dead man to life, Others come together to conspire and plot to kill Jesus. Jesus, in bringing someone to life, is now going to be turned toward the road of his own death at the hands of sinful men. Well, John here in this first statement that we're looking at, I am the resurrection and the life, John points us to Jesus Christ as the only one with the answer to the question of death. Here Jesus is pointing to himself as the one and only solution to the problem of death. You see, Jesus, unlike some politicians, is the only one who can say with absolute integrity, I alone can fix it. You see, when Jesus says it, it's true. Jesus alone can fix the problem that we all face. Death. My friends, this is good news. Because the gospel is the news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For the Christian, death doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. And what does he say here? I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you won't die fully and finally. You'll have life hereafter, but also life in me here and now. Because for the Christian, that future life becomes present, eternal life in Jesus here and now. It's not just the hereafter, it's the here and now. That's the abundant life Jesus is bringing And for the Christian, faith becomes personal. All blessings are found in him. They all center on Jesus. This is the only I am that's followed by a question. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say directly, are you hungry? He's going to say, uh, I am the door of the sheep. Do you want to come through this door? Indirectly he does, but directly there's a question. Do you believe this? See, this question that Jesus asked is unavoidable, but it is not unanswerable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just something to acknowledge, not just some doctrine to acknowledge is true. I mean, many people do, right? It's a doctrine, rather, to believe and to behold. It's a doctrine to embrace because it's personal. 
The one who makes this promise to you is the one who keeps his promise to you. My friends, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe him? Lazarus being raised from the dead points to the resurrection of Jesus. And my friends, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It's not a rapture where we're taken out. It's new life. It's a demonstration of Jesus' power over sin and death. The resurrection changes everything, not only on that first day of resurrection, not only every Lord's Day when we rehearse, as it were, the resurrection. No, the resurrection of Jesus really does change everything. It changes our calendar, doesn't it? My friends, has the resurrection of Jesus changed you? Has the resurrection of Jesus changed your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this statement of Jesus. We believe, but oh God, help our unbelief. Father, we want to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus here and now in our lives. Power to persevere, power to love, power to ask for forgiveness, power to forgive, power to deny ourselves, power to take the low road, to stoop and to serve. Father, be pleased to continue to change our life through your word and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And my response today is Jesus lives.